So my advice to the CEO would be to know, uh, learn enough to be dangerous, right? To understand the concepts and to know when someone might be feeding them <laughs> like a line of BS. And I actually think that you'd get a lot of those insights from the book directly. It, a, a lot of that, all, a lot of those security principles you need to understand are actually in this book already. So that would be the first thing. Make sure that you understand sort of the basics. But the second is, it's understand that it's okay that you don't need to be a security expert. In fact, you need to be Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Ted Harrington. Ted, thanks for making time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So for people not familiar with your background, can you tell us a little bit about your company and the book you've been writing? Yeah, I am a, I'm a leader of ethical hackers. And so the way to think about that were the we're the good guys who do bad guy stuff, and we help companies find their their flaws in their software or whatever before the the attacker does. I I wrote a book called Hackable that teaches companies exactly how to deal with that challenge that anyone building any type of software is certainly battling with right now, and then how to actually prove it. And I, I always think origin stories are a good way to answer that question. You know, we came out of security research, the PhD program at Johns Hopkins. And this was this was a while ago. This was back in 2005. And my business partner, Steve, he found out about this, this system that powers the immobilizer function in automobiles. And the immobilizer basically verifies, do you have the authentic key in order to start the car? Um, and, <laughs> and it was considered to be unhackable. And so, of course, they said, you know, challenge accepted. And uh, they went out to go study that. And it took a few weeks to reverse engineer the cryptographic algorithm and a few weeks to build a weaponized software radio. But then eventually, a couple weeks later, there they were starting a Ford Escape without the authentic key, just with this uh, weaponized software radio and, and a mechanical copy. And that was sort of what set the tone for everything that our company has been for the last you know, 15 plus years now. And even though we've come a, a long, long way from just, you know, a few few kids in a in a lab, the fundamental premise is still the same, right? Finding the problems for companies so that they can fix them before the bad guy does. I love it. So I'm guessing you guys got a lot of press for that at the time. Yeah, I mean that was that was a pretty crazy time because the attitude towards security researchers was very different then when it than it is today. And even today, the the relationship between companies and researchers is still a little lukewarm. Some some companies have great relationship with researchers, some have terrible, but no one was really doing stuff like this 15 years ago. I mean, the researchers who who were doing this research, usually what happened to them, they usually got sued. And so it was a bit of a calculated risk to publish research knowing that that's how companies dealt with security research at the time. And so it, they were not super enthused when, when they got the, the findings, but ultimately they were able to fix it and you know, improve their technology. That's great. So, you know, in this episode, I really want to talk about security. And then in the next interview, let's talk more about entrepreneurship. But when you think about innovation that's happening coming from the hackers these days, as attacks get more sophisticated, 
what what are some things that people may not realize is is happening right now? I mean, you hit the nail on the head by framing it around innovation, right? And that I always think of here's a way to think of hackers, right? Hackers are squirrels. And you think about if, you know, if any of your audience lives somewhere that you might have trees, and you might have a bird feeder. If you've ever seen a bird feeder, you've seen how relentless squirrels are in getting to the bird feed, right? They'll overcome pretty much any barrier you throw at them because to them, it's about survival, right? And that's really what, as defenders, we're up against. We're up against a very motivated collection of attackers who have more time, more money than really any defenders do. And they're constantly innovating. It truly is the proverbial arms race. And it's just, it's really amazing to see how on one hand, new tech, uh, new attack techniques are invented all the time. And then on the other hand, because that rapid pace of innovation is happening in the, really in the attack world, while that's happening, people are sort of unable to keep up on what's already been invented. And we see issues all the time that have been around for you know 15 years, 20 years or whatever, and companies still su succumb to those same issues because as defenders, sort of the victim side of the equation really aren't successfully keeping up at the same pace as the attackers are innovating. So um, specifically thinking about entrepreneurs, you know, startup CEOs right now and like investment fund managers. We have a lot of those people listening to the show. As we think about our businesses and, you know, protecting the business, take, protecting our client information, what are some like right off the bat things that we should be thinking about that maybe not all of our peers recognize right now? You should have started on security already. <laughs> That's maybe the first takeaway. Um, and I, I don't mean that sounded very judgy and like I'm a teacher lashing at you. I don't, I don't mean it that way. Yeah, but so many of us, like, until we've had the problem, we don't guard against it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. all sorts of parents get way more worried about their kid brushing their teeth every day after the kid had a cavity, right? True, true. Yeah, I mean, certainly once a bad thing happens, avoidance of that, again, is is a strong motivator for people. But I would even contend, and, and I write about this in my book, that the problem is not even necessarily a security problem that prevents your your startup founders, CEOs, et cetera, investment fund managers. It's not the security problem itself inherently that prevents them from making the appropriate progress on security. It's a different business challenge. And that business challenge is this. It's that security is often understood to be something that is not a core requirement for the, the essential value proposition of the solution. You see it all the time, actually, where companies will claim that their solution is secure, but they actually didn't do anything to secure it. And, and maybe in their mind, they actually thought that they did because maybe they're using some cloud platform that has security claims and they think, oh, well, that makes me secure. And the problem is that when organizations don't understand that security is core to the value proposition, they then see it as something that can be deferred. I can do it later. But what happens when that is the scenario that plays out, which plays out, by the way, in probably 90% of companies, they, they do security later. It's like, let's get the product built. Let's get it in the market. Let's see how the market reacts. Then we'll think about security. But what winds up happening is people don't realize this. It's extraordinarily more expensive to fix the security problems later if you wait till later. And I think a great metaphor for this is I have this friend of mine who has a this really cool roof deck on his house. 
and it's got everything you could want, right? It has a barbecue grill, it has a TV, and it has, of course, you know, these amazing views, and it's just a cool place to hang out. So it has everything you could want, except for one thing. It doesn't have a permit. <laughs> so when he built the, the roof deck, he was thinking, I'll come back to that later. That's not necessarily important right now. That's something I'll come back to. And so sure enough, he came back to it later. And when he went to go sell the house, one of the uh, the buyers that he was under contract with, they flagged it in their inspection as lacking a permit. And that actually killed the deal. And so what he had to do was he had to go back now and he had installed inappropriate lumber and hardware in inappropriate ways. He had to tear it all out and he decided to put it all back in because he felt that the roof deck was sort of one of the key marketing, uh, marketable elements of the house. So it was way more expensive, way harder, and a total nightmare when he wanted that problem to not be there. He was trying to sell the house, right? And that's what it's like when companies think about security later, right? You have to tear apart the roof deck you already built to rebuild it. When if you just from the beginning understood, well, I'm going to buy hardware anyway, let me buy the right hardware that achieves the security, the, you know, the goal I'm looking for. So in you know, in security terms, that's like when you're in requirements, requirements are going to dictate your threat model. So you should be talking about your threat model during requirements gathering. And a lot of companies don't actually do that. So um, thinking pretty basic, like even even just like our websites and our emails and like, you know, training the staff against social engineering, things like this, right? Um, when you think about, let, let's take the investment fund space, just just to have a space. When you think about a smaller investment fund, what are like, what are some examples of likely attacks that that we might face? Well, first, what you want to think about is motivation, right? And this is where uh, a lot of organizations stumble is that they think they think that hackers is all bad guys. And first of all, hackers, as it's in its own term, actually means good guys and bad guys. A hacker is just someone who solves problems and makes things do what they're not supposed to do. And so some of those hackers are good, like we are, and some of those hackers are bad. But really attackers, which is a more accurate term, uh, they really break into a variety of different categories. And each different attacker type is motivated by different things. And so they go from things like casual hackers might want to attack these types of systems that you're mentioning in order to just prove they could do it, right? They just want the notoriety to say that they did it. You've got organized criminals, organized crime. They want to make money, right? And there's all kinds of ways to make money by manipulating financial instruments, right? Including like one of the most interesting ones that I've seen. There's a couple. One is where companies will take a short position on a publicly traded company, attack the company, and then disclose the breach in order to drive the stock value down. And then, of course, they reap the benefit. That's a really interesting attack technique that's like a lot of people wouldn't think about that, right? They're, they don't even steal anything from the company. <laughs> they just, it's information that they're using. And another one is when this is, does involve stealing things, but when you, attackers might attack either the company directly or might attack the wire services in order to get their hands on things like earning reports before they're uh, published and then go make trades in the market based on what the, uh, the information is in those reports. And that's, I mean, if you knew the information the day before, think how much money you could make all day long every day. Yeah. What about, what about people who, who like have hard assets? You know, I own a solar farm, I own real estate, I own, you know, and I'm not worried about them getting a hold of the source of information, but like, you know, my reputation of all my shareholders and their financial information or other things like that, like big reputational loss, maybe. Any any thoughts about that kind of side of things? Yeah, I mean, no doubt about it. Reputational loss is <laughs> one of the core problems that everyone's trying to deal with. 
when you're talking about uh, business models that have you know physical assets and you might be thinking oh this this hacking stuff doesn't apply to me i would challenge that thinking by encouraging people to think more broadly about how does your business actually work so for example let's just say you're talking about you know some company that has they have a portfolio of uh, rental you know residential rental properties and okay, so this is ex this is exactly us at Greystoke Investments. We're trying to buy like big apartment buildings downtown in big cities. Like, okay, so totally okay. following you. <laughs> All right. So for you guys, you might be wondering, what does this hacking stuff have to do with me? Now, then you're going to look at how do you run your business, right? And you're going to see things like that you operate different pieces of software to manage the receipt of uh, the rent roll. You're going to have certain software that helps you. Um, evaluate your different pro formas and, and measure the uh, performance of those assets against your pro formas and inform decisions about whether or not you want to make certain changes. You're going to have certain software that you deal with that helps you think about how are you going to uh, react to what's happening in the regulatory you know, world. And essentially what we're talking about here is the access to information. And that information, when it becomes disrupted, or if it becomes unreliable, that could have dramatic impact on your business. There was a security assessment that we did for a particular application suite that essentially helps movie productions manage their budgets in real time. Now, of course, that's a little different from your business model, but the budget part is what's important. It's a piece of software that helps you in real time understand where money is, how it's flowing, or whatever. And essentially, we found this vulnerability that could be pretty easily exploited. It didn't even require a high level of skill to do this, where you could exploit it in a way where you could abuse the way that numbers are treated. So when the system was expecting a negative number, you could actually input a positive number or vice versa. And so when the way that the system worked, when it was expecting you know, minus a positive number, if you put in a negative number to that, that, that's addition, right? <laughs> Subtracting a negative number is addition. And this attack scenario meant it uh, meant that an attacker who could be an insider within that business or could just be someone who wants to totally mess with this business, they could manipulate it in such a way that now all that financial information that the business runs on is completely unreliable and they, they don't know what to do now. And so your ability as an owner of a portfolio of properties, you'd have a hard time if the information you just spent many, many, many person hours accumulating and analyzing to make decisions was no longer reliable. So that makes tons of sense. Uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking of another couple of ones and I want you know, I want to get your opinion of like how worried we should be, what, you know, what your, what your consulting advice would be. Right. So one I'm thinking about, there's so much new property technology, the whole prop tech world, and it's stuff like trying to make life more convenient for your renters, right? So it could be all sorts of things, but but for example, paying your rent online, right? Uh, much more convenient. And so to me, it feels like, oh, there's a there's an opportunity of like the the rent interface, you know, whatever software we're, program we're using for that before the money actually gets to my bank, you know, like, is that insured? What's, you know, like where, like, is where going to be the vulnerabilities in like collecting the rent, make sure the rent gets to us, right? Or you know, with the new regulations from the Jobs Act, one of them is called Regulation A plus, where you can, it's almost like doing like a mini IPO. You can raise money from anybody in the country, right? So, other people like us, they'll like they have investment buttons right on their website, or like Regulation D five hundred six C. I can do the same thing, but for credit investors, and like 
people are like, just like they're buying stuff on Amazon, they're, they're buying the investment right off the website. Maybe they're only putting 500 bucks or $2,000 instead of a million at a time, right? But, you know, one of our competitors raised $2 billion that way, right? So, you know, getting, it feels like getting in between that interface, you know, could be a, could be a real vulnerability or something. Any, any thoughts on either of those? Yeah, so there's a concept in security that's called threat modeling. And threat modeling essentially is the intersection of these three ideas. First is, what do you want to protect? The second is, who do you want to defend against? And the third is, where will you be attacked? So those three ideas make up this concept of threat modeling. And threat modeling is a really important idea that even a lot of security professionals don't fully understand or implement, but it's really the foundation of your, of your entire defense plan. And so when I think about anytime I look at any sort of technology, my mind starts automatically computing the threat model. And so I think the threat model for the, the payment processing for rent payments online the the assets that you'd want to protect there are of course make sure that the the integrity of the transaction like the money actually is collected goes to that company and then to you it doesn't go to some intermediary uh, scammer who gets the money first um, you want to make sure that the system is usable when that money needs to be paid so if uh, an attacker were to make it unusable or take it offline on say the first of the month or whenever the rent is due that would be pretty bad. Uh, I think the pe- kinds of people that you'd be thinking about in terms of defending against would be the likes of organized crime for sure. You know, anywhere that they can make money, they, they'd be really interested in that. But I could even see a scenario where things like hacktivists, which is an attacker type that what they want to do, they attack in order to make a statement to advocate for a cause. So I don't necessarily know what all the different types of properties are that might use this type of platform, but let's say it's either in a something, an area, these these properties are in an area that is identifiable in some way. Either it's, maybe it's a really, really wealthy area, or maybe it's a really, really heavily focused on one political party or the other area. Uh, And now someone might have like, like maybe you have like really high end buildings in Manhattan and it's like, it's the 1%, only the 1% can afford to live in that building. And you're going against that. Okay. Yeah. Someone like there's a really famous group that's called anonymous and they're pretty anti the 1%. And that is exactly the kind of thing that they would do. They'd be like, Oh, we could make it a pain for billionaires to, you know, pay their mortgage or rent or whatever. Let's do that. Yeah. So besides getting your book, which everybody should go check out hackablebook.com. Is that the right? Did I get that right? Okay. You know, I've read books like, you know, stuff from Kevin Mitnick or other social engineering books. What are other things that like CEOs who are not, you know, business, they're not security professionals, they're business professionals, but they realize like, oh, you know what? I think Ted's right. We should, like, I do need to take this more serious. I need to, you know, brush the teeth before we get a cavity, Right. Knowing that it's not going to be the primary focus of life, what are things that, that these leaders can do to, you know, get a more realistic scope of, of what the issue is and like become more educated and have it become more of the mindset ongoingly? Security is the same really as any other core business discipline that a CEO is responsible for. You know, any CEO, ultimately, it's the CEO's butt is on the line for every department, whether that's sales or marketing or finance, information technology, human resources, you name it. And security is one of those. And the commonality that sort of all of those have is that the CEO is responsible, but doesn't need to be the expert in all of those things. So my advice to the CEO would be to uh, learn enough 
to be dangerous, right? To understand the concepts and to know when someone might be feeding them like a line of BS. And I actually think that you'd get a lot of those insights from the book directly. It, a, a lot of that, all, a lot of those security principles you need to understand are actually in this book already. So that would be the first thing. Make sure that you understand sort of the basics. But the second is it's understand that it's okay that you don't need to be a security expert. In fact, I would even advise against it. And what I would advise you do is to take advantage of the same principle you see in other disciplines in your company and uh, get separation of duties, right? Hire an outside security company. Now, of course, I'd be happy if people hired my company, but, that, but that's not my point. My point isn't hire my company. My point is hire a company. And it's not just hire some company that's going to run some scanner for you. So if you go and you Google a, a common term in security is penetration testing, if you go Google that, you're going to get absolutely flooded with the not what you want. You're going to get cheap, automated approaches. What you really need is you need an advisor, right? You want to be able to turn to somebody and to say, what do I need to know? What do, you know, what, what do I need to think about? I don't know what I don't know. I work with a CEO who <laughs> I'll never forget the way that he put this. He said, he said, you know, Ted, I don't like monsters and I don't like getting bitten in the butt, but I don't know what the monsters look like and I don't know why they jump up and bite me. And it was like this ridiculous colloquial way to say it. But what he was trying to say was this, I don't know what I don't know, fear that a lot of executives have and his solution, which was definitely the right solution and is something I advocate for pretty much every executive is that you should work with a security consulting company who can advise you on these things. And if you get the right ones, and in my book too, I, I teach you how to hire a company, like what to look for. And I'd be happy like to- What are a couple of points? Yeah, what are a couple of points off that? What to look for? Yeah, so the first is that some companies sell products, some sell services, and some sell both. So when it comes to looking for an advisor, you want to find a company, you want to avoid companies that only sell products because you're looking for an advisor and you can't be advised with a product. So you either want a company that only sells services or a company that sells services and products, but only if the product isn't the solution to whatever your problems are. So for example, you wouldn't want somebody to say, well, as a result of this consulting engagement, you have this problem. And what do you know? I have a product that solves it for you. <laughs> it's just an underhanded way to sell you that thing. So that would be one. Another would be to what you want to do is you want to vet their capabilities, which is that's really that's chicken in the egg, right? How do you make good security decisions when you're trying to find the person to help you make good security decisions? But some of the things you could look for are things like, do they publish security research? Are they giving talks at the big security conferences like DEF CON and RSA and Black Hat? Are they writing white papers and blogs? Like, are they giving back? And those are the kinds of things you'd look out for. You know, I... Like 17 years ago, I worked for a security company down in Orange County, California, and they had one smart guy on the team who was speaking at Black Hat. So I got to go and, you know, it was my first time sitting at DEF CON and, and I didn't really, I wasn't really there for the content. So I mostly hung out in the hallways, but I got to hang out with a bunch of the speakers who, who weren't on stage at that point, you know, meet these like crazy German hackers that, you know, and I feel like it was like this, I don't know, it was a really interesting experience to see their world by just like literally hanging out with them and talking about whatever they wanted to talk about, you know? And I think for myself, like, this is not something I think about all the time, but I feel like. It's something that I need to do to remind myself to keep it in mind instead of like that once a year. Oh, yeah. Have we thought about that? Right. So like I'm on this newsletter called it's OODA loop, like O-O-D-A loop. 
And so it it like gives you a bunch of like, you know, terrorism stuff that's happening around the world on a daily basis that isn't picked up by CNN, stuff like that. And like breaches and hacks on their cybersecurity section, you know, and I don't read it every day, but like I get it every day and periodically I read it and it's like, oh yeah, I got to take that stuff serious. You know, it's like, because it's not a part of my normal daily, daily routine to think about security. It's like an artificial way to like prompt me a few times a month or something like that. When you think about when you think about sources of people who are like, yeah, you know, this is a news source I'd want to check in on. Who has more credibility than, you know, the CNNs or just the mass media? Like who who should we, you know, if we were going to look into stuff and see what's happened lately, what sources do you like? You're asking about specifically security stories? Yeah, for like things that for corporate security or government security, you know, I'm a leader and I'm trying to protect our organization. Like where can I see what's happened lately? Yeah, a really good blog would be Brian Krebs. He has he has a cool blog. He's the person who he found out about when Target was breached a bunch of years ago. He actually discovered it by research that he was doing on the on the the dark web. So it's pretty good. He he has a pretty large focus on credit card skimming and phishing and stuff like that. So there's definitely you know that that bent to it. We have a blog that it's not about breaking news, but it's more about analyzing the issues. So, um, and our blog is just uh, blog.securityevaluators.com. And so we look at issues like there was a story that just came out about some research that we published that showed how you could um, create a botnet by exploiting all these routers. A botnet is basically, imagine it like a, uh, like a zombie army. You can create these, take all these devices, take them over and make them do things as an army. And so that's an example of a blog that we wrote that analyzed the issue and sort of advised people on what to do about it. Those are a couple couple good ones definitely that I'd recommend. The dark reading has really good stories. That's where I actually read a lot of my, my stories about you know, security specifically, and they're pretty unbiased and uh, more objective. So I, those are some good resources for you. That's great. Well, anything you want to end here with part one of the interview? I know that I shared some sort of scary scenarios of like, oh, someone could steal your money or, you know, all these potentially bad things. What I'd want everyone to leave this podcast with is to know that it's not all bad. There, it is, in fact, a very precarious situation that we're in. And most companies and most governments, frankly, just aren't doing it right, mostly because they don't know how to do it right, not because they're willfully being ignorant, but mostly because they just don't know. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. There's, I'm not the only person out there like this that's advocating for how to do it better. Um, just engage the community, engage with security researchers and security consultants, and things will get better. They've gotten better over the last 15 years, and they'll get better over the next 15, but only if we continue to put a little bit of emphasis on it. I love it. Okay, everybody, tune in for part two. Thanks for doing this.